Good morning. Uh, my name is Seth Jones. I have a master's in intercultural studies from Wheaton College. Uh, five of my grandparents, yeah, five, uh, my grandmother remarried, were missionaries in Africa. Uh, I even helped build a church in Kenya, the, the building. Uh, the, the story of the church in Africa, consequentially, is of great interest to me. Uh, last year I spoke about the martyrdom of James Hannington and the other 200 or more martyrs in Uganda who were killed by uh, Kabaka Utesa. Um, Hannington was killed because he entered from the east at a time of political turmoil, colonialism, and as far as the Kabaka was concerned, it was an, a European invasion into his country. A uh, hundred years later, almost exactly, we're now going to go through the same all over again, it seems. There's been a, a long history of brutality in the ruling class in Uganda going back who knows how many years, but even when the Europeans first arrived, they were already killing lots of their own people just as a show of force. They were treating women like slaves. They had page boys, which were a little better than slaves, and persecuting Christians, Muslims, all religious groups, really, anybody who spoke out against them. So I, I want to start with a show of hands. How many people were here last year? So, good. There's some people who remember Hannington. That's awesome. Um, how many have heard of Idi Amin? Okay, so may maybe about as many. How many have heard of Janani Luwum? One person. I, maybe he remembers from when I, there was a Q&A. I remember you, you, you asked me about uh, Amin last year. Let's see here. Which button is it? Here we are. So this is a collect for the Feast of Janani Luwum. We're going to be doing this a little bit early. His feast day is February 17th. O God, whose son, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep, we give you thanks for your faithful shepherd, Janani Luwum, who, after the Savior's example, gave up his life for the people of Uganda. Grant us to be so inspired by his witness that we make no peace with oppression, but live as those who are sealed with the cross of Christ, who died and rose again, and now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, for and ever and ever. Amen. So, for those of you who don't know, a little brief geog geography lesson. Green country is Uganda. We have Congo here, Kenya here. That's where the uh, Kenyago Dandora School is in Nairobi. And then down here we have Tanzania. And up here is Sudan. At the time, it was one country. It has since split. Um, little timeline. So you have the, the British missionaries arriving in Uganda, making contact, founding the church in 1877. You've got some Catholic missionaries coming along. You have the, the persecution. Um, Hannington arrives. He gets killed not long after. Uh, more than 200 Anglicans and Catholics were killed by Mwanga in Amugongo, burned alive, um, beheaded, tortured, etc. cetera. Uh, that's actually not a complete count. There's really 
no conclusive count on that. This is just what we know about. In 1888, England backs a, a rebellion to depose Mwanga, um, partly at the, the ins, at the behest of those who were serving uh, in, in Uganda, uh, serving Christ in Uganda. They were calling out for some kind of intervention. Uh, in 1894, Uganda becomes a protectorate of the British Empire. Um, in 1922, Luwum is born. He was born in the middle of what's called the East African Revival, uh, a time when Christians were realizing that they were sort of lukewarm in their faith, and they were recommitting to live a more authentic and, and radical faith. Um, they were abstaining from alcohol, drugs, and other things like that, and just going out and preaching the gospel to absolutely everybody, and it even spread into the region where Luwum was. Uh, in 62, oh, before that, somewhere in here is, is where Luwum came to faith. It was 48 or 49. Uh, Uganda got independent from Britain. Mutesa II was named president. He was the son of um, Mutesa, or a descendant of Mutesa I and Mwanga and all that. He was a Kabaka. He was overthrown in uh, 66, and then Idi Amin took over in 71. Well, uh, Obote was out of the country at a conference. Soon after that, he started killing people. Many of them were from Luwum's own tribe. He was a Choli. This was partly because there was already some kind of political division the Acholi were mostly Protestant, and they had mostly supported Obote and uh, Mutesa II when he came to power. So they were seen as political rivals by Amin, who had already done his best to pack the military with people from his tribe and Muslims, because Amin was, um, shall we say, Muslim. I'm, I'm using a term loosely because what I've read of him, he really doesn't sound all that uh, devout. These are some of the more disturbing quotes from him. Germany is the place where Hitler was the prime minister and supreme commander. He burned over six million Jews. This is because Hitler and all German people knew that the Israelis are not people who are working in the interest of the world, and that's why they burned the Israels, Israelis alive with gas in the soil of Germany. In any country, there must be people who have to die. They are the sacrifices any nation has to make to achieve law and order. There is freedom of speech, but I cannot guarantee freedom after speech. <laughs> I have to keep law and order, and it means I have to kill my enemies before they kill me. And I don't like human flesh. It's too salty for me. He was allegedly a cannibal, there are some stories that he kept the severed heads of his murdered opponents in his freezer. Um, he called himself His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, Al-Haji, Dr. Idi Amin, VC, DSO, MC, CBE, Lord of all beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular.
Yeah, exactly. Um, he was born in 25 in Kobo, uh, Koboko. It's uh, in the northwest corner of the country near Congo and, and Sudan. His father was from the Kakwa tribe and his mother was a witch doctor. Uh, his father had converted from Catholicism to Islam. Amin went to an Islamic school. So he had an upbringing that was already a, a blend of traditional animistic beliefs and Islam. I tend to think he took the worst from both. He joined the colonial British Army in 1946 as a cook, rose to the rank of a fond, which was the highest allowed a black African in the British colonial army. Not long after Ugandan independence, President Milton Obote appointed him commander of the Ugandan army. He, of course, became, uh, he, of course, staged the coup in 71 which was a move that was welcomed by the British government and many other Western countries, by the Brits especially because he was seen as one of their own, having been in the British Army and been rather effective. Um, they tended to look over some of the more brutal moments of his career, like when he was involved in the Mau Mau Rebellion and did some things that I'd rather not speak about. You can read it for yourself. Of course, he, he began killing soon after taking power. In 71, Longo and Acholi soldiers were massacred in the Jinja and Mumbada barracks. They were ordered to return to their barracks, and then the barracks were blown up. By early 1972, some 5,000 Acholi and Lango soldiers and at least twice as many civilians had been killed. The victims soon came to include members of other ethnic groups, religious leaders, journalists, artists, senior bureaucrats, judges, lawyers, students, and intellectuals, criminal subjects, and foreign nationals. He made it a point to favor Muslims and those in his own tribe when making appointments. And it was not uncommon for Christian government officials to be replaced with Muslims. Even before he took power, he heavily recruited others from the Kakwa tribe into the army to solidify his power base. By 79, when he was overthrown, he killed between 40,000 and 500,000 Ugandans. He expelled all the Israelis, cultivated relations with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, with the Saudi king, with the Soviet Union, persecuted Anglicans, Catholics, and those outside his tribe. Like I said, he expelled all the Asians, and that actually does include a fair bit of Muslims, people who are from India and Pakistan of the Muslim faith. He had promised Gaddafi and others that he would turn Uganda into an Islamic state. This despite the fact that Uganda at the time was only 6% Muslim. The vast majority were either Catholic or Anglican at this time. Catholicism had a bigger dominant role. 
At first, at least, he and Lewum were friendly. Here's a picture of the two shaking hands. This was at Lewum's consecration and enthronement in 1974. However, with Amin stating his intentions that he was going to turn Uganda into an Islamic state, it's not long before this relationship soured and friction got in the way. Lewum was born in 1922 in East Acholi. The East African Revival Movement had swept through the, the land. In 48, Johnny came to accept Christ. His family had expected him to be a chief one day, but Janani felt that Christ was calling him to be a pastor. In 1955, he was ordained deacon, and in 1969, he was consecrated bishop in the Diocese of Northern Uganda, which was a newly created diocese, or I should say it recently split into two because of the growth that happened there. He was the first member of the Acholi tribe to become bishop and one of the few native Africans to be a bishop in the Church of Uganda. He was known for being a uniter, for being deeply committed to Christ and his flock, and for his parables about sacrificial giving. Of course, as I said at the beginning of the slide, he was consecrated and enthroned as bishop in 74. So, if the president sent Secret Service agents to demand your archbishop hand over all the money in All Souls Anglican Church to finish the construction of a national mosque, how do you think our church should respond? Anyone? Would anyone say yes? I didn't think so. Would such a response possibly lead to martyrdom? Yeah, especially if the president is Idi Amin. This is the mosque he was trying to build. Gaddafi had actually given him a sizable amount of money. I think it was like, oh, maybe 14 million or something crazy like that to build this mosque in Kampala. However, Gaddafi, um, Amin being Amin, yeah, a military dictator who, with grandiose ambitions of taking over the world or at the very least attacking Israel, yes, that, that was one of his ambitions. It, it's in... Uh, a movie called Idi Amin Dada, A Self-Portrait, which was a documentary made by the French in 74. He actually states on camera that he wants to send paratroopers into Israel and take it over. Uh, that 14 million is not likely to get spent on a mosque. It's more than likely going to get spent on mercenaries and military hardware first, which is what he did. And when he ran out of money to build the mosque and realized that Gaddafi might be asking about this mosque that he paid for. He then, at least according to uh, one of Amin's bodyguards, went knocking on the door of the Anglican church and demanded that the money that was allocated by the British government for the centennial celebrations, because remember this is 100 years since the Anglican missionaries first arrived, um, he demanded that that money for the monument and all that be given to him for the construction of the mosque. 
and of course he said no. The mosque wasn't completed until, two, until 2004, 2005, something like that. It took 30 years. It was often joked that the minaret was crooked, much like Amin. This is Janani Lewum's own voice, actually. He's uh, talking about the, the coming centennial celebration. How the Church of Uganda is going to celebrate the centenary? Uh, the, the main celebrations really will be will be centered on June the 30th. June the 30th will be the peak date. That is the day uh, the missionaries arrived in Uganda. Is the Church of Uganda still, the, the, the Christian Church generally in Uganda, still growing quite rapidly? Yes, we're seeing uh, new converts, uh, as more so now with, with the centenary celebrations, because this year has been, we've called it the year of the mobilization of the people. Uh, and every diocese, every single diocese had an evangelistic and outreach mission. And also, not only that, as a result of the mission and all these conventions, we're seeing more people coming forward for baptism instructions, for confirmation. How the Church of Uganda is going to... Right. And I, I thought that was cool, and I thought that I'd share it with you, because it's not every day that we actually get to hear the voice of somebody who's considered a saint by the church, especially someone who was martyred. 1976 was a very, very important year in the history of Uganda. It wasn't just that the church was preparing for its 100-year anniversary. This was also the year of the Entebbe uh, hostage crisis. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody know? Good. Amin had said a couple years prior on camera, again in uh, self-portrait, it's in the Criterion Collection, you can rent it streaming, it's probably about the most disturbing film I've ever seen, uh, that he, he would welcome Palestinian terrorists into his country. In 1976, he made good on that promise by allowing an Air France Airbus to land in Entebbe Airport with about 200 passengers on board. 84 of them were Israeli citizens. As a uh, show of good faith, I suppose, you can call, if you can call it that, he released all except for the Israeli passengers and held them hostage for several weeks in Entebbe Airport. This was not a terribly bright move on his part because Entebbe was actually built by the Israelis. So they actually had all of the original construction blueprints and everything on hand. And when he was going on television and on radio describing the situation, it wasn't hard for the Israelis to figure out exactly where these hostages were being held. 
So they sent in a commando strike team, freed all the hostages, and really embarrassed. I mean, things ended up spiraling downhill from that because when you're a paranoid dictator like Amin, you don't respond well to that kind of embarrassment. It, I've heard all kinds of crazy things like at, at points, I mean, demanding that Israel, references to Israel, be removed from the Bible. Uh, he, you already know from the quote that he ended up being quite the anti-Semite. And it, it just goes on and on and on. Everything was spiraling downhill and coming to a head in 1976. And it, there, there was increased persecution. You had Catholic priests and bishops and just being dragged out of their own masses while they were conducting mass, just dragged out of their church, killed, murdered. It got so bad that the, that the Anglicans and Catholics had to get together and make a stand. They, they knew that this was going to be dangerous, but they had to do something. And so he decided to... Um, Lewum and the, uh, the cardinal decided to call a meeting of all the bishops and cardinals in the country. They discussed the situation, and they decided to write a letter to, I mean, the Anglicans drafted a letter first, and because it was so specific to their situation and its wording, um, the Catholics didn't sign it but they did offer insight about what should be changed and so forth, but their names were not on it. I figure I should read it. To His Excellency, Al-Haji Field Marshal, Dr. Idi Amin, VCDSOMC, Life President of Uganda, President's Office, Kampala. Your Excellency, with the Archbishop and Bishops of the Province of Uganda, Buganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and Bogazaire, humbly beg to submit our most deeply felt concern for the church and the welfare of the people whom we serve under your own. In presenting this statement, we are in no way questioning the right of the government in administrating justice to search and arrest offenders. We believe that the government has established structures and procedures for carrying out this kind of exercise. Is there established structures? It is these established structures and proceedings that give the citizens a sense of what to expect in their government. These structures and procedures give the police the intelligence and the security forces a framework within to work, within which to work. With, when these procedures are followed in carrying out their day-to-day -day duties, this gives the ordinary citizen a sense of security. It creates mutual friendship and trust between such officers and the general public, irrespective of uniform. But when the police and security officers deviate from these established structures and procedures in carrying out their day-to-day -day duties, citizens become insecure, afraid, and disturbed. They begin to distrust these officers. We are deeply disturbed to learn of the incidents that occurred at the Archbishop's house in early hours of Saturday, February 5th, 1977. In the history of our country, such an incident in the church has never, been, never before occurred. Security officers broke through the fence and forced their way into the archbishop's compound. They used a man they had arrested and tortured as a decoy to entice the archbishop to open his door. 
to help a man seemingly in distress. The archbishop opened his door. At that point, armed men who had been hiding sprang to attack, cocking their rifles and demanding arms. When the archbishop asked, what arms? The answer was the muzzle of a rifle pressed against his stomach, and immediately he was pushed forcefully into his house with the demand, Archbishop, show us the arms. Your Excellency, you have said publicly on many occasions that religious leaders have a special place in this country and that you treat them with respect for what they stand for and represent. You have on many occasions publicly demonstrated this, and we are always grateful. But what happened to the Archbishop is a direct contradiction of what you yourself, Your Excellency, have said in public and to the established structures and procedures in dealing with security matters. Now that the security of the Archbishop is at stake, the security of the bishops is even more in jeopardy. The night following the search of the Archbishop's house, the Bishop of Bukhedi was both searched and arrested. It was only when nothing could be found at his personal and official residences that he was later released on the Sunday morning. This left the people in his diocese wondering, and the wondering is spreading quickly. The Christians are asking, is this what is happening to our bishops? If this is what is happening to our bishops, where are we? Oh, gosh. The gun whose nuzzle has, muzzle has been pressed against the archbishop's stomach, this gun used to search the bishop of the Bukhedi's house, is a gun pointed at every Christian in the church, unless your excellency can give us something new to change the situation. The security of the ordinary Christian is being, has been in jeopardy for quite a long time. It may be that what has happened to the Archbishop and the Bishop of Bukhedi is a climax of what's consistently happening to our Christians. We have buried many who have died as a result of being shot, and there are many more whose bodies have not been found. Their disappearance is connected with the activities of some members of the security forces, Your Excellency. If it is required, we can give concrete evidence of what is happening because windows, widows and orphans are members of our church. Furthermore, we are made sad by the increasing forces that are setting Ugandas one against another. While it is common for Uganda, in Uganda for members of one family to be members of different religious organizations, there is an increasing feeling that one particular religious organization is being favored more than any other. So much so that in some parts of Uganda, members of Islam who are in leading positions are using these positions to coerce Christians into becoming Muslims. There is also a war against the educated that is forcing many of our people to run away from this country in spite of what the country has paid to educate them. This brain drain, the fear, and the mistrust make development, progress, and stability almost impossible. The gun which was meant to protect Uganda as a nation, the Ugandan as a citizen and his property, is increasingly being used against the Ugandan to take away his life and his property. Many cars almost daily are being taken at gunpoint and their owners killed, and most of the culprits are never brought to justice. If required, we can enumerate many cases. Too much power has been given to members of state research to arrest and kill at will innocent individuals. Just pause right there to explain. State Research Bureau was the name given to the military police department. Amin had replaced the traditional like civil court system, the, the, the court system that was run by civilians with military tribunals. 
We are also concerned about the developing gap between the leaders of the Christian churches, archbishops in particular, and your excellency. We had been assured by you of your red ability, availability to religious leaders whenever they had serious matters to discuss with you. You had even gone to the extent of giving his grace, the archbishop, the surest means of contacting you in this country, wherever you may be. Luwum had a red phone, you know, the kind of phone where he just had to pick up and I mean, be on the other end. It, it goes on and on and on, but the point is, by signing this, Lewum was basically signing his death warrant, as were all of the other bishops who signed it. I'm having a little bit of a technical difficulty here, but you can certainly look this up. It was published everywhere in the hopes that it would make him safe. It would make them all somewhat safe because then the world would know. I mean, didn't care. This is basically a story of what happened in the words of his widow. I don't have sound. Is it muted? Memory, 38 years after the death of her husband, former Archbishop Janani Lowom. The Archbishop's widow vividly remembers her last words to him that fateful morning on Wednesday, 16th February, 1977. Earlier, there had been ominous signs that Archbishop Lewum could be in danger. That month, President Idi Amin had summoned him several times for grilling at State House. One night, soldiers raided the Archbishop's home with the help of a suspect and searched it for many hours. Thereafter, Lewum and 17 Anglican bishops sent a protest letter to President Amin. The letter reads in part, we have buried many who have died as a result of being shot, and there are many more whose bodies have not been found. The gun which was meant to protect Uganda as a nation, the Ugandan citizen and his property, is increasingly being used against the Ugandan to take away his life and his property. On Tuesday, 15th February 1977, Lewum and Mary held a five-hour meeting with President Amin in State House and Tebe. For Mary, the allegations and incessant summons to State House were becoming too many. Mary 
Mary, who now lives at the family home in Kidgum district, says her husband refused to flee to exile and preferred to keep with his flock in the trying times. On the eventful Wednesday, 16th February 1977, Archbishop Lewum and other bishops were invited to State House for a meeting. Three suspects claimed that the Archbishop was conspiring to overthrow the government. That evening, Lewum was murdered alongside Internal Affairs Minister Oboth Ofumbi and Inspector General of Police Erunayo Oriyama. Government claimed that the trio died in a car accident which is widely believed to have been stage managed. Mary and their seven children immediately fled to exile in Kisumu, Kenya. The army later transported Archbishop Lewum's body to his home in Muchwini sub-county in Kitgum district. Just a few people buried him at the small Anglican church at Wigwang. Here lies one of the greatest men the country has ever seen. He led a commoner's life and for over 30 years was lying in a simple grave here until this one was renovated in 2010 by the U.S. Army. Mary returned to a hard life in Uganda in 1979 following President Amin's ouster by Ugandan exiles backed by Tanzanian forces. Thereafter, she left for the village and embarked on farming to make ends meet. Janani Jakalia Lewum was born in 1924 in Muchwini in Kitgum district. He joined leadership ranks in the Church of Uganda in 1955 after quitting teaching. On 25th January 1969, he was consecrated Bishop of Northern Uganda in Gulu. In 1974, he was elected Archbishop of the Metropolitan Province of Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and Boga Zahire. He started out as a member of the chosen evangelical revival, a Balokole or born again denomination within the Church of Uganda, to which these four Christians belong. Lewum mentored many prominent church members, including retired Archbishop Henry Luke Orombi and Archbishop of York, John Sentamo, who is expected to lead a special service to celebrate Lewum's life. Lewum is among ten modern martyrs honored by the Anglican Church with his statue at Westminster Cathedral in London. On Monday, 
Hundreds of people from Uganda and across the world will attend the annual commemoration service for Archbishop Lewomi Muchwini that is expected to be graced by President Yoweri Museveni and other dignitaries to honor a man who remains popular in death just like he was in life. Moses Sakena, NTV. <laughs> So un unfortunately, it didn't stop with his death. He, Amin then proceeded to start killing even more Christians, more members of his tribe, people he knew. Bishop Festo Kivangeri was another one of the bishops who was arrested because his name was on the document. He wasn't one of the signers. I think he was somewhere else at the time that it was being written, but he was listed, and so he was forced to leave the country. He was uh, understandably very upset, at, I mean, for murdering so many, for oppressing the church, for killing his bishop, but he recognized that this hatred of Amin was destroying him. I've even run across people who, to this day, say things like that they wish that Amin would be tortured in the worst pit of hell. I can understand that sentiment, but Amin's dead now. He's, he died in 2003. When this book, I Love Edie Amin, was written, he learned to make it a point to pray for Amin. To forgive Edi Amin. Because Amin, just like any one of us, is a sinner in need of God. He was hoping, as were some other Ugandans, that Amin might turn out to be like Paul. Unfortunately, it didn't happen that way. I haven't read this book yet. I, I hope to soon. There's a chapter in it that's titled Loving the Unlovable. And coming from Kivangeti, that means a lot. So I thought we could have a little discussion and then conclude with a prayer. Yes. I don't know if everyone can see the lettering, but he, um, when he was speaking, but accused of having guns. The only gun I have against Amin is the Bible. And I was looking up the passage in Joshua that was on his grave. Um, it, from uh, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Seth, I want to. Um, there's a Anglican theologian. Radner, who did a lot of work in Burundi, and he blames um, even the Rwandan genocide of, in part on Christian disunity. Can you talk more about why, um, and I'm not trying to pin blame here, I just want to know the information. Why didn't the entire Christian church, including the Catholic bishops, sign this letter? Can you give us more on this? Because there were the letter contained too much stuff in it that was particular to the Anglican situation. At least that's how it was explained. Okay. 
in this book. Um, they, they all stood together in opposition. Don't get me wrong. Right. It's just that because it was, it mentioned specific events, like the archbishop's home being invaded by Ugandan soldiers, because after um, things were kind of going south there with Entebbe and all that, at some point he was actually framed for um, starting an uprising. And that may have been partly because um, he was a Choli. I, it may have been because of the whole mosque situation, if that's true. It may have been partly because he was an archbishop in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And well, there's been more statements against the British by a means than I can count. Whatever it is, it, it was that letter was specific to the Anglican situation, so they decided not to sign it, but they did stand against Amin in their own way. Um, there were divisions, of course, between Anglicans and Christians at many, many times. There was even a civil war or much earlier in their, in their history, like after the Kabaka was deposed and then you had the, the British siding with one side of this sort of civil war and then imposing their own rule on the country, making it a protectorate. But because of the impression of Amin, it actually brought both sides together. They didn't have a choice. Yes. Mm hear it in the interview with his wife, but at least one source I read, I think it was in this, either this one or this one, supposedly one of the last things he said to his wife was, if I die, my blood will save Uganda. Yeah, it's a lot to take in, isn't it? It, it, for me at least, it, it gives me a new perspective because you know it seems like our country is screwed up in so many ways, and you know we, we there's vitriol spewed from both sides of the aisle, and there's lots of division. But then you're you come face to face with this kind of thing, and I, I did set through about an hour and twenty minutes of just watching. I mean, talk. That was, again, if, if you have the chance, by all means, go ahead and watch the self-portrait. It's the first movie I've ever watched where I didn't feel safe sitting there watching it. And that's saying that even knowing that this guy has been dead for longer than my son has been alive. Yeah. yeah. Can you say anything about the, uh, the Christian church in Uganda today? And what ah. is? Well, obviously it continued to grow. Um, they have completed their basilica, enshrined the 
Uganda martyrs. Janani is now counted as one of them, even though he was 100 years afterwards. And I think he's sort of uh, symbolic of all of the other martyrs at the time who will go nameless just because we'll never know how many. It's still not perfect. It seems like every time I go and I look at the next chapter, I discover the chapter afterwards. And it's not pretty. Sometime in the 1980s, after Obote retook power at the help of the Tanzanians, you see the start of the LRA right there in Uganda. Does anybody know what the LRA is? Yeah. I know about them because my father was in Zaire. He went back recently, within the past 10 years or so, to set up a radio station. Zaire, by that point, was called Congo. The LRA came in just maybe four or five years after he left and completely demolished everything that he helped to build. The LRA was initially started as a pseudo-Christian opposition to Obote's successor, I forget his name, and then it just kind of morphed from there into just this violent gang, if you will, that didn't really seem to have a purpose, but just was self-sustaining. It recruits child soldiers, forces them to fight and die for reasons I can't understand. Yes? No. One thing that um, is often on my mind is more of a question. Is it possible that there are some who are who are specifically called to kind of confront people uh, directly and others are called to simply do good in their little circle? <coughs> or is that a cop out? I don't, I don't know. But I wonder. I think there's many ways to go about you don't all, we're not all obviously called to be archbishops. And I, I suppose another famous response to unspeakable evil on the part of a Christian would have been, um, gee, what, what was his name? During World War II, the, the Lutheran, the Bonhoeffer, right, who famously was involved in an assassination attempt against Hitler. It failed, of course, but I mean, that was a guy coming from pacifism and then was just so overwhelmed by the evil in front of him that he got involved in an assassination plot. Uh, there's, there's lots of ways to resist. I, I'm sure if you, even if it's just providing or hiding a Jew in Nazi Germany or trying to rescue some people who are in your village who are being persecuted by the government and just hiding them away or, or feeding them or something. In, in, they did, there were many people who resisted Amin. It wasn't just the letter. I mean, there was even a woman I came across in reading Uganda Holocaust who ran an underground railroad to get people out. There's lots of ways to go about it. I don't think it's a cop-out. I think there's just different parts of the Christian body and there's different ways that different parts are capable of responding to it and should respond to it. 
You have warned us, warned us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that those who follow him may be oppressed and abused because of their faith. We ask that you can comfort and give courage to all your children who fall victims to unjust imprisonment, physical harm, and intimidation at the hands of oppressors. For those who have given their lives for the fright of freedom to openly share and live out their faith, may they be welcomed into your warm embrace. For those who persecute our brothers and sisters, may your, their spirits be touched by the incredible faith of those who they attack, and may they turn away from sin and open their hearts to your love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.